What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about protest and resistance in America, where it's been, where it's going, what works and why. L.A. Kaufman will explain it all. Her new book is How to Read a Protest. Also, cities providing sanctuary for people the federal government is trying to arrest and return to the oppression they had escaped Today's battles over Trump's attacks on undocumented immigrants have some striking parallels with the battles over fugitive slaves in the decade before the Civil War. Andrew Del Banco will comment. His new book is The War Before the War. But first, we're still thinking about the midterms, not only the Democrats winning a majority of the House, but the way Democrats ended decades of Republican domination in the white-hot heart of American right-wing politics. Starting in January, not a single Republican will represent Orange County, California, in the House. It's solid blue. For comment, we turn to Gustavo Arellano. He's a weekly op-ed columnist for the LA Times and the former editor of the OC Weekly. He resigned in protest rather than lay off most of the staff, as demanded by the owners. And he was probably best known before that for his syndicated column, Ask a Mexican, read by 2 million people in 38 cities. We reached him today somewhere in Colorado. Gustavo Arellano, welcome to the program. Gracias, John. Well, remind us of the place of Orange County in American political history. Where should we start? Nixon in 1946? I mean, you could go all the way back to Richard Nixon's opening line in his, in his autobiography, where he it famously and accurately said that he was born in Yorba Linda in a house that his dad built, which he didn't build. Then you skip over to 1964, Barry Goldwater's disastrous presidential campaign, where later on he famously said, uh, yeah, I only carried Arizona and Orange County, of course. And then you go uh, to Reagan, where he, before he uh, started his reelection campaign in 1984, before 50,000 people in Miles Square Park, he told reporters, Orange County is the place where all the good Republicans go to die. Well, that Orange County is now dead. 
<laughs> Orange County is the place where all the good Republicans go to die. You left out one person, John Schmitz, John Birch Society <laughs> member sent to Congress. Remind, in case people have forgotten, tell us about John Schmitz. John Schmidt was, uh, he said he joined the John Birch Society because he wanted to join the moderate wing of the Republican Party. <laughs> he, he ended up being run out of office by Richard Nixon after Schmidt said, I don't have a problem with Nixon return, uh, going to China. I just had a problem with uh, Nixon coming back. But my favorite quote from Schmidt is, I may not be Mexican, but I'm close. I'm a Catholic with a mustache. <laughs> So, yeah, oh, yeah, Orange County knew how to breed these crazy, the craziest of the crazy Republicans. And you still had one in outgoing congressman, Dana Rohrbacher, uh, who uh, called himself the surfing congressman, even as he supported the Taliban, Trump, Russia, and all these things. And now he's out. I mean, again, we are in, we are in no man's land right now. If Orange County is not solidly Republican, then anything's possible in American life. Well, this year, the pundits said before Election Day that Democrats might have a chance in Orange County because Orange County, for the first time since 1936, voted Democratic in a presidential election, but that a Democrat on the party's left could never carry the Republican House districts in, in Orange County. For example, Irvine, very middle class, very white and Asian, but a Democrat on the party's left did carry Irvine. Let's talk about Katie Porter defeating Mimi Walters. Katie Porter is studied under Elizabeth Warren. She's a professor at the UCI, UC Irvine School of Law, which is a very progressive institution. Erwin Chemerinsky was a founding dean there. So very much coming from the left, first-time candidate, Mimi Walters has been in politics in Orange County, a Republican, for about 20-some years. She was a familiar face. People didn't really hate her, but people didn't really like her. So I actually didn't think Kate, I, I didn't think Katie stood a chance. And on election night, she was losing by not a huge margin, but by a margin. But slowly but surely, you start getting these provisional ballots back. You start getting these mail-in ballots back. And she chipped away, Kate chipped away, chipped away, chipped away. And then all of a sudden, she beat her. So that, to me, was the biggest – well, no, that, that, that was the second biggest upset. To me, the biggest upset was Gil Cisneros finally – Pulling out, uh, pulling out a victory against Young Kim up in the 39th in northwestern Orange County. Now, uh, would you call Gil Cisneros your typical Orange County Latino? <laughs> no, because typical Orange County Latinos don't win the lottery and uh, can amass a fortune of two hundred and some million dollars there. Okay. And what are Gil Cisneros' politics? So Gil Cisneros, again, when people talk about the blue wave in Orange County, really with, uh, you have two candidates who used to be Republicans and are now Democrats and are self-funded millionaires. Harley Ruda, the guy who took out Dana Rohrbacher, and Gil Cisneros. So Gil Cisneros, Navy veteran, Chicano, so his parents, uh, so he himself wasn't a native Spanish speaker from the east side of Los Angeles, you know, from San Gabriel Valley around there in Los Angeles. So, uh Another first-time candidate as well. Not necessarily, you know, not exactly the most firebrand progressive of them all, but he decided to run for office. He fought a hard campaign in the primary, beat a more progressive opponent, and the district that he now represents it is the most emblematic district of Orange County, where uh, it's a third Latino, a third white, a third Asian. The Asians, especially, are mostly conservative, Koreans, and. Um, Filipinos as well, and the Latinos for the most part, a little bit more middle class, but you also have a big undocumented population. So Gil didn't exactly 
inspire the Latino masses. But nevertheless, I think the Latino masses in this era of Trump, they said, hey, we got a Latino running. We're going to vote for him. Ultimately, a nice guy. But again, not definitely not a Katie Porter. I have another question for you about the vote count. As you said, Katie Porter and Gil Cisneros were both behind on election night. And a lot of people thought they were losing, that they had lost. And it took a week to count all the votes. And it turns out the late votes in Orange County, the ones mailed in at the last possible minute, are Democratic. And the Republicans who send in mail ballots send them in right away. What is it about Orange County Democrats that lead them to send in their ballots on the last possible day? Um, I, I, I could make a joke and say everyone was on Mexican time, and I'll, I'll say that for Latinos. I, I can't say that for the white folks. But no, what this is all about, the Democrats, they poured millions of dollars into this campaign. The, Dem- the Democratic Congressional Candidate or Candidate Committee, the DCCC, whatever the name is, they, ha- they set up shop about a year and a half ago specifically to target Orange County, all these races. And you had grassroots activists. So they did everything possible especially to get first-time voters who maybe didn't want to even go to uh, the ballot box, but, hey, you tell them to fill out uh, a ballot, they'll send it in at the last possible moment, provisional ballots, of course. And in California, you, know, you can just sign up on Election Day, drop off your ballot, and, or mail it off uh, at, you know, on Election Day, and then they'll count it later on. So it really uh, – and more importantly for me, the Republicans got completely surprised. They were so arrogant in really thinking, oh, this is always going to be Reagan country. So if ever there was a party that deserved to lose and get embarrassed, it was the Republican Party of Orange County. There's one district we haven't talked about and one particularly sweet victory. Daryl Issa withdrew from the campaign because he was so unpopular. But remind us who Daryl Issa was, how he got to be a congressman, what he did before that, long before he withdrew. Yeah, if memory serves me correct, Daryl Issa was a car salesman who uh, hounded, geez, any any Democrat possible. So he hounded Obama, had a role to play back in the days in California, the deregulation fiasco with, with the energy industry. But this was a man uh, only won by 1,000 votes back in 2016. So he saw the proverbial writing on the wall, did not run. In his place was an even worse, if you could think of a worse Republican than Daryl Issa, it was Diane Harkey, this anti-immigrant, uh, uh, former state assemblywoman who was on the board of equalization. So Harkey, never necessarily popular, even though she was the president in South Orange County. Now you had a progressive, real progressive Democrat, environmentalist, Mike Levin. Don't forget that district encompassed northern San Diego County and South Orange County. So you have to speak to the veteran. You had to speak to the environmentalists down in San Clemente. Uh, the powers that be in Orange County have been trying to shove a toll road down uh, San Onofre State Beach. This is one of the last pristine wetlands in Southern California. And so Levin just, uh, that was the one race of the, of the four contested ones where it was no contest. On election night, everyone knew Mike Levin had soundly defeated Diane Harkey. Big picture. The biggest issue for progressives in Orange County throughout the Southwest is Latino turnout. Why don't more Latinos vote? This time they did. Voter turnout for Latinos from the 2014 midterm to 2018, so far we know it's up 174%. How did it get to this point? Frankly, Latinos always vote in two ways. They either vote out of anger, and we have a president in the White House that engenders a lot of anger, or they rally around a candidate that they could believe. Uh, with the exception of Cisneros, none of the other candidates really had a significant Latino base 
in, in those congressional districts. So the folks that went to uh, Harley Ruda, Katie Porter, and Mike Levin, there weren't that many Latinos. And the 39th was Cicero, uh, then you did have some votes. But I think with Latinos, the next step, I mean, now we have two Latinos from Orange County in Congress, Lou Correa, incumbent who had Loretta Sanchez's old district, and Gil Cisneros. Now you really have a congressional delegation that's beginning to look like Orange County. Don't forget, Orange County's been majority-minority since 2004, yet the the, uh, Correa-Sanchez district was the only one with a person of color now. So the next step for Latinos, okay, let's start getting more Latinos into the lower rung, uh, lower ballot offices, so eventually one day they can be state assembly members and state senators and eventually more Congress people. Last question. If California's Orange County can go blue, could it happen someday in Texas? I would actually say I would have been more uh, understanding if it happened in Texas because you do have a lot of Latinos there. And, you know, especially in the bigger cities, Austin, El Paso, Houston, almost all of them are blue. Eventually, it's going to happen. Again, when you have a president in the White House the way that he is, Latinos, we are the proverbial, uh, stereotypical, really, sleeping giant. And this election, and not to use another stereotype that people use about Latinos, we flexed our political muscle. In 2020 now, the Democrats need to run someone in the White House that's going to excite the Latino base. Maybe it's Beto O'Rourke. Maybe, I don't know who else it would be. It better not be Hillary Clinton because Latinos really, really don't care for her. We didn't really care for Clinton. So time for the National Democratic Party to learn from Orange County, run new, fresh candidates are going to inspire people. And again, if Orange County can turn blue, anything is possible in politics in the United States. Gustavo Ariano is a weekly columnist for the LA Times. Thanks, Gustavo. Great to have you on the show. Gracias. The Art of Organizing and Resistance. For that, we turn to L.A. Kaufman. She's been a grassroots organizer and movement journalist for more than 35 years. She was a coordinator for some of the largest demonstrations in American history, the Iraq anti-war protests of 2003 and 2004. She writes for The Guardian, N Plus One, and other publications. Now she's got a new book out. It's called How to Read a Protest. L.A. Kaufman, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, John. Well, you say protests work, just not the way we think. We want to talk about a couple of key protests, compare and contrast them. The most celebrated mass protest in American history, at least before Trump, was probably the 1963 March on Washington. That's the one, of course, that culminated with Martin Luther King giving his I Have a Dream speech. The year after that, Congress passed the first real civil rights law in 100 years. And the year after that, the first real voting rights law in 100 years. In some ways, it's the definitive protest march. And at that point, it was the biggest mass march on Washington in history. So let's talk about the the March on Washington of 1963. How was it organized? How were its goals uh, defined? Well, the march certainly had as its goal passing that legislation as well as broader action on a range of, of, of civil and economic issues. But uh, what's, what's striking to me about the 63 march is although it did play a role in the passage of the 64 Civil Rights Act and, and the 65 Voting Rights Act, people tend to look back on it and see a closer association than there actually was. And then to use that myth about the power of the 63 March to disparage subsequent movements. 
protests rarely, especially big protests, rarely work as short-term pressure tactics. They help build movements in all kinds of other ways. You say the mass protest march in America was a black invention conceived by black leaders, shaped by black organizing traditions, and built mostly through black organizations and networks. That's a very striking claim that I hadn't thought about before, but I'm pretty sure you're right about that. You know, when I when I started working on this book, I had the vague sense that there had been mass marches in America before 63, and, and certainly there was protest before then. But the mass march, and particularly the March on Washington as we know it, really never happened before that 1963 March on Washington. And that's become a powerful and influential template for a whole range of movements. One of your principles in how to read a protest is to pay attention to the signs the signs at the March on Washington were different from the signs we've, we see more recently. Yeah, when I discovered this detail, that was what sent me into the archives, um, because having organized huge mobilizations myself, um, I was uh, flabbergasted when I discovered that at the 1963 March on Washington, all of the signs were controlled by the March leadership. You weren't allowed to bring your own sign or have your own slogan. They not only chose the slogans and printed out uh, all the posters and handed them out to the crowd, but they had a force of some 2,000 volunteer marshals who, if you happened to bring your own sign, would surround you and take it away from you. Amazing. And that happened, Yeah, it's amazing. And it was, what, of course, the questions that 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 raised in my mind. As someone who organized huge protests, first of all, I wondered how on earth they managed to pull that off, because it's not so easy to control a crowd of a quarter million or more so tightly. But then the second question was, why? Why did they want to? There was a lot of talk beforehand. I think part part of the why was that there was a lot of talk beforehand about the many ways the march could go wrong and that the march would be, quote, marred by violence. Was that a legitimate concern or was that just kind of racist disinformation? It was mostly racist disinformation. I mean, nearly all the violence associated with the civil rights movement by that point was violence directed toward it. And the idea that bringing large numbers of African-Americans together was going to lead necessarily to, to violence and mayhem was a profoundly racist assumption. But the, the organizers were also very concerned with what's sometimes called the politics of respectability and with really wanting to project a very controlled, very orderly image for the march and not allow there to be any messages there that were more radical than the demands that they wanted to foreground. It's interesting that the people who did show up at the march with their own handmade signs and had them taken away were mostly really grassroots activists from the South, were civil rights activists who'd been doing frontline work in places like Mississippi and brought their own heartfelt handmade signs to convey what they had been through and what they were looking to achieve. And those, I managed to track down one sign, uh, one unauthorized sign. I have a photograph in the book. Um, but, uh, you know, on the whole, they were just taken away. And what did that sign say? It's remembering Megger Everett, who had been assassinated um, just a short while before. Well, after the 1963 March on Washington, probably the most famous march in our history is the Women's March 
the day after Trump was inaugurated. That was not just a march on Washington, but it had hundreds, I'm sure everybody remembers this, hundreds of sister marches all over the place, huge marches in big cities and little marches in tiny towns everywhere. Let's compare and contrast these two just to start with the most striking difference between the Women's March and the 63 March on Washington is that the Women's March was not making demands on Congress or making demands of the president. They weren't proposing legislation. They weren't advocating for policies. That makes it a really different kind of march, doesn't it? It does. And um, in some ways, that um, puts it in the tradition that Occupy Wall Street was in. Occupy Wall Street was famous for not having specific demands. Um, As you noted, there wasn't just a march on Washington following in the footsteps of that 63 march. But on this occasion, there were more than 650 sister marches around the country, which shattered previous records for coordinated protest in the U.S., the idea of having you know, simultaneous protests around the country is nothing new, but it rarely ever happened in more than, say, 200 locations at a time. And the women's marches just blew that record out of the water and set a precedent for the resistance to Trump, which has proven to be remarkably widespread geographically. It's been you know, robust numerically, but it's also been in every corner of the country. And the women's marches of January 2017 are regarded pretty much by all of us as a tremendous success. On the other hand, the biggest anti-war protests in the history of the world were you know them well, the eve of the Iraq war in 2003, where millions and millions of people demonstrated all over the world. That didn't work. That was not a success at stopping Bush from launching the war. We need to talk about that one, too. It certainly felt afterwards like this had been a hopeless cause since the beginning. So I was the mobilizing coordinator for those marches. And as an organizing project, they were an extraordinary thing to be at the center of. It was, um, you know, a massive mobilization that was put together in record time, came together in something like six weeks. As you mentioned, February 15th, 2003 still stands as the largest single coordinated day of protest in world history. And yet it didn't stop the war. Um, It was certainly an object lesson in the idea that there's not necessarily a correlation between size and impact when it comes to protests. Bigger protests do not always have greater impact than smaller protests. It's a much more complicated algorithm. Um, But there also are times when we just simply, no matter how many people march in the streets, we simply don't have the power to achieve what we want. You know, I was haunted for years by the experience of of having been in the midst of that mobilization where so many people did such extraordinary work, where, you know, the protest came off so splendidly and powerfully as protest, and yet the war proceeded, George Bush was reelected, you know, we had a march outside the 2004 Republican Convention that still stands as one of maybe the five biggest marches in U.S. history, uh, but it didn't stop George Bush from being reelected. The, you know, the questions that those experiences raised for me 
have been kind of worrying away at me for years, and it was the experience of stepping into the crowds in 2017 at the women's marches and seeing that something very different was happening that led me to write this book. I think it matters to protest even when you know you're going to lose. Sometimes you have to lose as a stepping stone to winning. Sometimes you just need to be out there saying, we don't agree with what you're doing and we think that it's wrong. But, of course, the sense of despair that many people had when the war proceeded, even after we had marched in such huge numbers, really meant that the anti-war movement never never regained the strength that it had going out of the gate in 2003. Well, let's talk about the 2018 midterms. Of course, a big, big success for Democrats and winning back control of the House. What's your analysis of the 2018 midterms and the political mobilization we've just seen? Well, I see very strong through lines from those 2017 women's marches to the 2018 midterms. The scale of the volunteer grassroots mobilizing the get-out-the-vote work was absolutely staggering. For sure, it exceeded any previous midterm cycle, election cycle in American history. And there's some indications that it may well have exceeded the levels of volunteer engagement that we've seen in the most active of the presidential election cycles. And so much of that was women, again, not waiting for permission, not necessarily going through established groups, perhaps going through some of the thousands of local resistance groups that were founded after those women's marches, uh, most of which have affiliated with Indivisible, or through other advocacy groups, stepping up and doing the unglamorous, crucial get-out-the-vote work of phone banking and text banking and door-knocking that produced the record turnout that we saw and that in turn produced the Democrat victories all around the country. You conclude your book, How to Read a Protest, that no matter how massive protests are, they don't signal a threat to the existing order. And the big question is not how many people attended. So if that's not the big question, what is the crucial question for big demonstrations? Well, I do want to say that that it, we could that there are there is a there is a scale at which protests would signal threat um, to an administration, but they would have to be about double the biggest protests we've ever seen in American history. Um, the The thing about the massive protests that we have in America is they're all one day affairs, and leaders know that however many people march, they're going to go back home. And in order to signal a threat, people would have to do something different. They would need to stick around for an ongoing occupation or engage in civil disobedience or do some other kind of work that carries forward and extends the power of that marching into other arenas. We saw that people did that with the electoral work after the women's marches. But the marching alone, what it does is something different. What it does is it gives people the sense of their collective power, that feeling of belonging to something bigger than themselves. It's an important part of movement building, but it's not so much the tactic that's going to help us win. The big question about protest is not 
how many people attended. It's what did they do afterward. L.A. Kaufman, her new book is How to Read a Protest, The Art of Organizing and Resistance. L.A., thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me, John. The separation of children from their dark-skinned parents. The description of dark-skinned people trying to escape inhuman conditions as rapists and criminals. The federal government coming after them in some cities and states declaring themselves sanctuaries. What's happening now has some striking parallels to the decade leading up to the Civil War, when the Fugitive Slave Act divided Americans and forced them to confront the question of when to submit to an unjust law and when to resist. For that history, we turn to Andrew Del Banco. He's the Alexander Hamilton Professor of American Studies at Columbia. Time magazine named him America's Best Social Critic, and President Obama presented him with the National Humanities Medal in 2012. His new book is a great one. It's called The War Before the War, Fugitive Slaves and the Struggle for America's Soul from the Revolution to the Civil War. Andrew Del Banco, welcome to the program. Thanks very much for having me. Well, slaves who escaped from their masters and made it to free territory were a political issue from day one of the United States. The Constitution, to our shame, includes a clause requiring that runaway slaves be returned to slavery. In 1787, anti-slavery was a fairly new idea, but the opponents of slavery tried to block this fugitive slave clause in the Constitution and failed. Why did the slave owners succeed at the Constitutional Convention? Well, I think one one reason is that it was pretty evident that uh, if, the, if the project of putting these basically two different nations together into one was going to succeed, certain concessions had to be made. We, in retrospect, can fault them or we can we can shame them and we can denounce them and I'm quite sympathetic to those kinds of denunciations but the political reality at that moment seems to me to have required concessions about slavery the fugitive slave clause as you know is not the only one I think it I think many if not most of the founders including some from the slave states really did believe that slavery was on the Road to extinction. And then in 1850, Congress passed a fugitive slave law and the president signed it. You call it a law without mercy. What did the fugitive slave law of 1850 say? Well, everything it said was in favor of the slave owners. It denied the accused fugitive the right of habeas corpus, the fundamental right enshrined in the Anglo-American legal tradition that gives a defendant the right to contest the legality of his detention in open court. It denied the right to a jury trial. It denied the right for the defendant to testify in his own defense. It made it a federal crime for any citizen to come to the aid or assistance of a fugitive. It created, or at least enlarged, a whole new class of federal officials called commissioners who had the authority to return fugitives to slavery without any semblance of due process. So in 1850, 
The federal government made it a crime to shelter an escaped slave, and it required local authorities to help capture escaped slaves and to return the help return them to slavery. It's not hard for us today to see how that raised directly the question of whether to resist an unjust authority, how to do it. Many in the North, as you say, did, including not just individuals, but cities. And tell us about the resistance to the fugitive slave law. Well, the resistance, the initial resistance was most dramatic in Boston, which was in many respects the nerve center of the abolitionist movement. One of the first slaves to be arrested under the fugitive slave law, known as Shadrach, was uh, sprung out of out of out of prison by uh, a mob that invaded the courtroom and uh, whisked him away and through various cities and towns north of Boston, he he made his escape to Canada. After that happened, uh, the authorities got more serious about. Uh, defending against that kind of public response. And there were several more cases in which fugitive slaves were convicted and returned um, to, to servitude in the South, the most notorious perhaps being the case of 1854 when Anthony Burns was um, returned on a ship from the pier of Boston Pier to, to, to service, as they said euphemistically in the South. That event radicalized uh, the anti-slavery movement in the North. Persons who had been in the middle now shifted to the left, including, for instance, the industrialist uh, Amos Lawrence, who uh, wrote after the rendition of Anthony Burns, we went to bed as good conservative compromise unionists, and we woke up as stark mad abolitionists. My favorite case of resistance is Wisconsin, where an escaped slave named Joshua Glover was captured in 1854 under the Fugitive Slave Act, held in a Milwaukee jail. What happened then? Very simple. A a large group of people, mostly black, entered the jail and with an enormously long piece of timber, battering ram, I guess you could call it, they knocked down the door and sprung him out of jail, and that was the uh, end of the detention of Joshua Glover. And then the Wisconsin Supreme Court declared that the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 was unconstitutional. And then the Wisconsin State Legislature refused to recognize the authority of the United States Supreme Court to enforce the Fugitive Slave Law. That's pretty striking. Right. It is. And it points to a larger issue, maybe a paradox. The Fugitive Slave Law stimulated what we could call secessionist sentiment in the North. I mean, when Emerson objected to it in 1851, he went so far as to say, uh, we are two countries, one civilized and Christian, one barbarous, and the idea that there should be a linkage between these two countries no longer makes any sense to me. This This is an aspect of the story that I think is somewhat overlooked, and it actually runs all the way up to the eve of the Civil War when we when we find abolitionists like Wendell Phillips uh, reacting to the firing on Fort Sumter by saying, you know, they have a right to go. You say letting the South go its own way would have been a victory for slavery, that destroying the Union would, you write in the book, actually strengthen slavery rather than weaken it. How could that be? Well, there was a sentiment in the South that uh, 
it was the federal government that was constraining the expansion of slavery, right? And uh, if, the, if the South were, became a self-governing political entity, there were those who believed that uh, there could be a re-engagement with Mexico and more Mexican territory could be seized for the cultivation of crops to be raised by slave labor. Uh, the Caribbean was ripe for development. Uh, Cuba was another possible place to go. And uh, a cleaner, simpler alliance with Britain might have been possible. Um, which was, of course, a main customer for the export crops. Now, you know, I'm not saying that would have happened. It's, a, it's one of those historical what-if questions. What I am saying is that in order to try to enter into the mind of mid-19th century Americans with scruples and principles and even convictions that we might respect, uh, we have to entertain the the, the possibility that their anticipation of what might have happened was based on, on, on some form of reality. Lincoln was of the view that the, to put slavery, as he often stated it, put slavery in the path toward ultimate extinction, that that required an integrated union, uh, I don't mean racially integrated, I mean a sectionally integrated union, which would eventually evolve to the point where the institution of slavery would wither away and die. Now, we don't know whether that would have happened either. What we know is that the war came and the war became the instrument for the destruction of slavery. As my colleague Eric Foner often says, there are basically two schools of thought about the Civil War. One is that it was a political failure and the political system could have worked it out. The other that it was an irrepressible conflict, to use uh, William Seward's famous phrase. I've come closer to that second position through the work I did on this book. But yet, I think we can allow ourselves to read with some sympathy and empathy those who wanted to avoid the catastrophe of civil war. At the end of the day, I mean, what you know, how many of us are prepared to say war is the right way to solve political or moral problems. It takes a lot to drive contemporary progressives to that position, I, I suspect. And so I think we find in 1850 a lot of people in Lincoln's position who hoped that there would be a path toward the abolition of slavery that would be short of secession and short of war. Well, let's conclude by talking about the parallels between fugitive slaves in the 19th century and undocumented immigrants today. Any responsible historian, of course, should be wary of parallels between past and present. But it's kind of impossible to overlook the echoes, or to close one's ears to the echoes. Sanctuary cities, the rise of what I call at one point in the book, the first Black Lives Matter movement. Now, the Black Lives Matter movement of today is perhaps not directly connected to the illegal immigration problem, but the, 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 the great connection among all these elements is, of course, uh, racism. The sad truth is that the country in the middle of the 19th century was shot through with the conviction of white supremacy. And although politicians today are more uh, wary of explicitly 
identifying themselves as white supremacists, uh, explicitly denigrating people of color, uh, that theme is the undercurrent in the immigration debate. As much as reasonable people could disagree about what is the right immigration policy and what are the right border controls uh, and on what grounds should we admit some and how should we define refugees and asylum, all of those are debatable questions. What's not debatable, I think, is that we have witnessed a resurgence of basically racist antipathy to people of color fleeing desperate conditions, which may not be technically equivalent to slavery, but are conditions under which no person with a choice would wish to live. So, you know, the fugitive slaves of the mid-19th century were crossing an internal border. They were undocumented. They were illegal in that sense. And they had no citizenship rights. And the illegal immigrants of today are crossing an international border. And so the parallels are uncomfortably distinct, despite the salient differences. Andrew Del Banco, his book about fugitive slaves is called The War Before the War. Andrew, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.